Hi, I'm Vashi Capellos, and welcome to the West Block Podcast for Sunday, November 19th. We're here in Halifax covering the Halifax International Security Forum, where leaders and decision makers from over 70 countries have gathered to discuss and debate the state of security in our world. One of those leaders is NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. We had a chance to sit down with him, and he has some pretty pointed words for the Canadian government. Here's that conversation. Well, thank you so much, Secretary General, for joining us on the program. It's great to have you. Does, uh, does Canada spend enough on defense? Canada is, is uh, spending more than it did before, and I welcome very much the strong commitment of Canada to uh, significantly increase uh, spending in the coming years, and we have seen a significant increase uh, this year. Um, Canada, as many other NATO allies, reduced uh, spending on defense after the end of the Cold War. Uh, and that was quite uh, natural because then tensions went down. But now tensions are increasing again and therefore we have to again invest more uh, in defense. The goal or the target that many NATO allies set back in 2014 was 2% of GDP. Even with this increase, the pledge to increase spending in Canada, the target we will hit is only 1.4% of GDP by 2025. Does that disappoint you? What we decided back in 2014, uh, all the NATO leaders, was to stop the cuts, gradually increase defense spending, and then move towards spending 2% of uh, GDP on defense. And Canada is now delivering. They have uh, stopped the cuts and have started to, to increase. Uh, I uh, have underlined many, many times that the burden sharing within the alliance is partly about spending, and spending is important, but it's also about uh, contributions to NATO missions and operations, uh, the output of what we invest in defense. And Canada has uh, stepped up its contributions to NATO missions and uh, operations. And Canada has many high-end de deployable capabilities, which are of high value for uh, NATO. So I would, of course, very much like to see even more spending, but I welcome also very much the fact that uh, Canada has increased and has also started to uh, deliver even more uh, contributions to NATO missions and operations. So at this point you're satisfied with Canada's contribution? I'm satisfied uh, with the, the movement, with the direction that Canada is moving uh, in the right direction and the fact that we have seen a significant increase uh, this year in uh, defense spending uh, in Canada. What is the consequence, because we talk a lot about the spending and how much countries are spending, what is the consequence of of not having the level of burden sharing that you're talking about? It will undermine the solidarity, the unity of the alliance. And uh, NATO is the most successful uh, military alliance in history because of our unity, because we have been able to stand together based on the principle uh, one for all, uh, all for one. And that has kept us all safe uh, for uh, almost seven decades because any potential adversary knows that an attack on one NATO ally will trigger the response from the whole uh, alliance. Uh, and to be able to continue to be united, to, to continue to, to say that we protect each other, uh, we need fair burden sharing. And those countries uh, that are uh, spending 2% or more on defense, of course it's absolutely understandable that they are calling on all the others to step up. And that was what we agreed in 2014, uh, that those who are spending less than 2% should 
uh, start to increase and move towards spending 2%. Is there any real consequence, though, for the countries who don't step up? Because there are many of them among NATO allies. Uh, well, the good news is that this year uh, we will have uh, more countries meeting the 2% uh, target, and next year even uh, so two more countries will join the club of uh, uh, spending 2% on, uh, on GDP. So more countries uh, uh, reach the 2% target. So applying the pressure is working? Uh, yes, I think, but I think the reality is that we speak about political leaders who were in the same room uh, and promised uh, that they should step up. Uh, and, and European allies and Canada are now stepping up uh, uh, with more spending, but also with more uh, uh, military presence. Uh, Canada and US is increasing their military presence in Europe and European allies are also stepping up when it comes to defense spending and capabilities. And we have to remember that strong NATO is of course good for Europe, but it's also good for North America. The only time we have invoked uh, Article 5, our collective defense uh, clause, was after an attack on the United States, 9-11, and hundreds of thousands of uh, Canadian and European soldiers have fought alongside uh, US soldiers in Afghanistan as a direct response to a terrorist attack uh, on the United States, which shows that, yes, uh, NATO is extremely important for European allies, but uh, NATO is also important for North America. Let me ask you about Afghanistan, because I know NATO has announced its intention to uh, send an additional 3,000 troops there. Uh, will you be making an ask of Canada to contribute to that? We are welcoming uh, contributions from all NATO allies, and of course we are also uh, welcoming any contributions from uh, Canada. Uh, Specifically troops, though? Are you but, looking for that? But we are in dialogue with all NATO allies, but I'm not going into the details on what kind of asks we have from the different uh, allies. I think the best way to approach allies is to sit down with them and discuss uh, potential contributions. Uh, Canada has contributed for many, many years uh, to our uh, mission in Afghanistan. Uh, Canada is not present now, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and several Canadian soldiers lost their, life, uh, uh, their lives in, in, in Afghanistan. Uh, we are, what NATO has decided as an alliance uh, is that we will uh, continue to be there, uh, because uh, for NATO it is, it is extremely important that uh, Afghanistan uh, doesn't become a safe haven for international terrorists once again. That was the case before 9-11. Uh, uh, there are many problems. There is violence. There are, uh, there are uh, instability. There, there is instability in Afghanistan. But if we leave Afghanistan now, uh, it will be chaos and it will be uh, again uh, a country which is controlled by terrorists, by Taliban, and actually also ISIL is present in Afghanistan, so therefore we have to stay. Uh, and continue to support the uh, government of national unity. I want to move to North Korea. I know you were recently in Japan and South Korea. When speaking with people there, what is your sense of how real the threat from North Korea is to them? It is a real threat, uh, but it is a threat uh, that has been there for a long time, uh, especially for uh, people living in that uh, region. Uh, what is of great concern now is that uh, North Korea has stepped up its efforts to uh, develop uh, nuclear weapons uh, and also uh, long-range missiles which uh, will be able to hit cities uh, in North America and in uh, Europe. And therefore we have to put maximum pressure on North Korea uh, with diplomatic means, with uh, uh, political means, but especially with economic sanctions. And the good news is that uh, the UN Security Council uh, agreed on tougher economic sanctions in September 
and that the sanctions are now implemented to a higher degree than we have seen before. And this is then increasing the pressure on North Korea. We have to make sure that they stop developing nuclear weapons, stop developing their uh, missiles, and uh, engage in a constructive dialogue to denuclearize uh, uh, North Korea. Who should be leading the charge when you talk about upping the pressure? Well, there is, a, there is, a, there is something called a six-party format, which is a group of nations which, are, uh, which has negotiated and talked with North Korea uh, before. Uh, what I welcome now is that uh, the UN is again playing a key role. We have the uh, decisions uh, in the UN Security Council. And uh, we see that China uh, is playing an even more uh, active role in trying to find a solution. China um, uh, supported uh, uh, stronger economic sanctions uh, in September. China is a permanent member of the Security Council. China is also a neighbor uh, of North Korea. And China has also now sent an envoy to North Korea to try to uh, convey a clear message uh, from the international community. So. Uh, the whole international community has a responsibility, but I think especially China being a neighbor and a member of the a permanent member of the Security Council uh, gives China a, a special responsibility and a special role to play. And just before we go, I want to ask you, I have to ask you about uh, the role Donald Trump plays in all of this, because there's a lot of attention being paid to the rhetoric he's using. He's calling Kim Jong-un uh, short and fat in a tweet. Uh, should he be doing that? President Trump has a, a strong language uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, that's the way he expresses his political uh, opinions. What matters for me as Secretary General, uh, General NATO is that uh, NATO is united uh, in our approach uh, to uh, North Korea and uh, the missile and nuclear threats, meaning that we are seeking a peaceful negotiated solution, but to achieve a peaceful negotiated solution we need maximum pressure on North Korea, uh, especially with the economic sanctions. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's not easy to make sense of Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump's relationship or Russia's interference in the American election. U.S. Senator Jean Shaheen, a Democrat, was the first senator to call for public hearings into Russia's interference, and she doesn't want Donald Trump to go easy on Putin. Here's our conversation. Senator, it's wonderful to have you here. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it's it. It's wonderful to be here in Halifax. Um, I wanted to start off by asking you, uh, you are the very first senator who called for a public inquiry into Russia's interference in the American election. Why were you prepared to make that call before so many others? Well, I had gotten some of the re early reports that suggested that they had uh, hacked into election systems in states in the, the U.S., and I thought we needed to begin investigating as soon as possible um, before the election to see if we could take measures um, to try and prevent any damage they might do. Um, sadly, we're hearing now as the result of uh, hearings and investigations that the interference in our elections was much more widespread than even we believed. Are you surprised by how widespread it appears to be? Did you think it would be that much? You know, the more I investigated and learned about what was going on, the more I've learned about what they've been doing in other European countries, um, it's not surprising. It's disturbing. 
and it's the reason why we need to take action so that they understand that they ha they're going to be held accountable for what they've done. When you talk about action, uh, specifically as it relates to this epidemic of fake news that has become a big mm -hmm. part of the story, how difficult is it to balance the type of action you want to pursue versus you know, censorship and the idea of freedom of speech? Well, first of all, one of the things that the Congress did was impose sanctions uh, that had overwhelming bipartisan support. Um, so those are sanctions that are on the Russian economy and on individuals, and we need to very strongly enforce those sanctions. And I think there are other ways in which one of the things we heard at today's panel was looking at financial, um, increased financial sanctions to address money that's coming in from oligarchs in Russia who are really supporting what Putin is doing. Um, so I think that was very important. What about when it comes to uh, to fake news, though? Some kind of, you know, is there a strategy that the that your country or ours even could employ uh, to to mitigate some of the the action that has been taken in that respect? Um, you know, I think we need to work on that. I introduced legislation that would address um, RT and Sputnik, two Russian channels that are funded by the Russian government that have direct links to make sure that they have to register in the United States so that people know who's funding them um, and the fact that they are a propaganda tool of the Russian government. I think we need to think about ways in which we require um, disclosure for what's happening. There's legislation in the U.S. Congress now for social media that would say if you took out ads um, and you were the Russian government or some other government that you would have to disclose who's paying for those ads. So that's one thing that I think we can probably all agree on, that disclosure, transparency, the more we can do of that, the better. The challenges with the fake news arena and how do we address the disinformation. And as you point out, in a free society where we believe in freedom of speech, that's more challenging and it's something I think we have to continue to work on. When American intelligence agencies originally presented their assessment uh, that there was interference in the election, they refrained from saying whether it affected the outcome of the election. How difficult do you think that will be to prove? Well, it's not clear yet. Um, I'm not sure that we'll ever know the extent to which they influence the outcome of the election. Um, the investigation continues to look for ways in which the Trump campaign and um, members of the White House staff may have um, colluded with Russia on the activities, and that's part of what's still being investigated. Does it matter if the outcome was effective? Or is it, is it the, you know, it, is what's most important the fact that it happened? I, I think the most important thing at this point is trying to make sure it doesn't happen again. And that's why getting the background on what happened, how it happened, gives us the best information that we can to prevent it from happening in the future. And, you know, we've had a debate in the United States about that's started out very partisan because there was concern about whether it was just about the last election. And I think as we've learned more and more, we've discovered that it wasn't just about the last election. This is a deliberate tool that's being used by the Russian government to undermine Western democracies. So it happened in the United States, it happened in England with Brexit, it, ha it happened in Spain very recently with um, Catalonia and 
um, their efforts to leave uh, the rest of Spain. It's happening across Europe in the Balkans. So we have to recognize that that's what's happening and prepare not just as individual countries, but as an alliance with NATO in every way that we can to understand that this is another way that Russia is using to undermine the West. I want to ask you about Donald Trump because it's hard to talk about Russia uh, without asking about him and, and his relationship with Vladimir Putin. Um, I, I want to read something, a quote of his, when he said, it doesn't make sense not to have some kind of relationship with Russia. We're a tre tremendous nuclear power and so are they. Does he have a point? Well, I think most people who have looked at the relationship with Russia understand that we should try and have lines of communication with Russia. Now, my, my argument is not with the Russian people. It is with Vladimir Putin, with what he's doing through the Kremlin, with what he's doing in his own country to um, <clears throat> around human rights for individual Russians, um, what he's doing in countries across Europe. And, and so I think that's the argument that we have. Are there things that we should be cooperating on? The answer is yes, of course. Uh, finally, when President Trump said that he believed Vladimir Putin very recently, that there was no interference in the election, what was your reaction? I don't believe Vladimir Putin. And you would have to be naive to believe that he's going to admit to what they've done. But we have, on the one hand, President Trump saying, oh, I believe Vladimir Putin. And on the other hand, we have 17 U.S. intelligence agencies who have all come to the same conclusion. So I think it's very clear that Russia interfered in our elections. Okay, thanks very much for your time, Senator. Wonderful to have you here. Thank you. 150 Canadian Special Forces are in a holding pattern in northern Iraq. They were deployed there originally to train Kurdish forces to fight ISIS. But then the Kurds voted for independence from Iraq. Ever since then, they've been embroiled in a bitter, at times violent, internal battle with the Iraqi government centered in Baghdad, and Canada is caught in the middle. So will we intervene? Here's the defense minister. Thank you so much for joining us, Minister. Great to have you on the show. Great, thanks for having me. I wanted to start off by asking about our country's role in Iraq. Uh, we're hearing from Kurdish officials that they want Canada to intervene and sort of mediate, bring both Baghdad and the Kurds to the table together. Are you willing to perform that role? When I was at NATO um, and on the margins, we had the wider counter to ash meeting and uh, all the defense ministers were uh, given a, an update, and we, we were told that things discussions were actually going uh, going well. So that's good. That's good to hear. Um, our mission has always been number one is to, uh, as part of the coalition, is to defeat Daesh, and that's what we've been focusing on, working with the Iraqi government um, uh, moving forward. And we made the right adjustments uh, um, uh, for this. Um, so we're hope hopeful that uh, the uh, Iraqi government and the Kurds can uh, resolve their dispute as quickly as possible, so we can get to back to the mission at hand. So just to be clear, your, your information is that the talks between Baghdad and the Kurds are going well? Yes, yeah, so well, from, that's what from, what, uh, from our gathering, uh, the discussions um, have, gone, uh, have gone well. Hopefully that that will continue, um, and, we'll, and we're encouraged by that. Um, but we're, we're always ready to provide any type of uh, support uh, that, that is necessary. But our number one mission was always to making sure that uh, uh, Daesh was uh, defeated. 95% of the territory has been retaken, but what we want to focus on is the capacity building, making sure that the Iraqi security forces have the ability to deal with any type of threats of the future. And last thing we want is uh, conditions to be set again for a group like this to be reconstituted or a new version of it uh, created. So can you qualify what you mean by support? Do you support the Kurds 
bid for independence? We don't, well, for us, it's, uh, uh, we're not going to be diving into the internal issues and we've been very clear about this. Any type of support that we provided has, has, has been with in consultation with the, uh, with the Iraqi government. Um, our work that we have done with the Peshmerga um, it was, it was in the same way. We're very proud of the work uh, and the relationship uh, that our Canadian Armed Forces personnel have built with the Peshmerga. Uh, a lot of great work was done, especially uh, in the early days before the Mosul uh, operations. Uh, and we'll continue to provide the, the right type of support for, for us. The main focus has always been the, the unity side of things, and the unity is uh, making sure that we go after the, uh, focus on the main mission, which is to deal with Daesh. So the Canadian government doesn't have an official position on Kurdish independence? Right now, we want, we're, we're encouraged by that the, uh, that the Iraqi government and the Kurds will be able to uh, re resolve this. Does that mean that you hope that the Kurds stay? Does that mean that you hope that the Kurds stay? Kurds stay in... in within Iraq, or...? I mean, that's a decision that they're all going to have to make. I mean, for us to be able to um, uh, to, um, uh, to take any sides here would be inappropriate. Uh, we want to encourage uh, unity, and the unity is to making sure that uh, what the coalition is there for, is to defeat Daesh and preventing any type of a situation like this from reoccurring again. Build the capacity uh, of the Iraqi security forces, help build the police capacity as well. But more importantly, the governance piece, the development, all that stuff needs to, needs to be done because we can't allow the conditions that allowed for uh, Daesh to grow within that area to ever set again. Because it re I mean, look at the blood and treasure that it requires for us to deal with threats like this. The Special Forces mission in that part of Iraq has been suspended. At what point or what criteria do you have for lifting that suspension? Well, um, I'm, I'm still waiting for uh, the situation to be, uh, I guess, uh, materialized that both the, the, the Iraqi government um, and the Kurds are, are able to work things out um, among, amongst themselves. Uh, we don't what want does to that look like, though? Well, but it's hard to say right now exactly what it's going to look like. Uh, what we were doing before, for example, any type of support that we provided um, uh, with the Peshmerga was always with the uh, approval of the uh, Iraqi government, and we'll continue to do that. So we're going to work within. Um, I'm very proud of the work that's already had that has been accomplished to bring uh, the country 95% free of Daesh is, is, is a very big accomplishment. And that's what we want to do, is making sure that all parties remain focused on the, uh, on the mission at hand. Um, because at the end of the day, um, if uh, any type of disunity at the early stages, well, you know, it it's, it's potentially allows for uh, any type of radical group or a new version of Daesh from being, from being created. Is that suspension indefinite? Are you reviewing it, you know, on a weekly basis? How oh, long I get, we get briefed up regularly. Any time the situation changes, I get briefed up. Um, if six months from now, though, for example, we're in the same place and there's still no resolution, do those 150 men and women stay there or do they come back home? Well, we can't make that decision. It's hard to say about six months from now. Things could even be changing within the next week or, or a month. Um, so it's hypothetical situations that you can't really answer those type of questions, but we're monitoring uh, the situation. Nonetheless, we've already made the changes to the contribution, for example. Uh, we made adjustments uh, very early on, hence the reason why we have a, um, a counter-ID folks uh, on the ground uh, helping to train the Iraqi uh, security forces to deal with a horrible threat that'll um, not only save the Iraqi security forces' lives, but civilians as well. And we'll, so even with what's, what's going on right now between the Kurds and the Iraqi government, we'll still um, look at opportunities where, where we could uh, provide that support. Um, uh, I'm happy to say that you know, it, it's a good thing when, when you have success against an enemy like this. So you can actually start adjusting 
um, your, tra your training. So rather than um, the Iraqi security forces themselves in the direct fight, they actually can now focus a little bit more on the capacity building and build that sustainability and look at, uh, a, look, also look at some of the root causes that allowed a Daesh to be created in the first place. Before we go, I just want to switch to the peacekeeping announcement you made last week. When will Canadians know where our troops are being deployed? Well, I can't give you an answer just exactly on that. We're starting, uh, well, continue our discussions with, uh, with the leadership at the UN. The military is also done doing their prudent uh, uh, planning. Um, plus, it's not just a military portion of where we're going to be going. We need to also assess um, the wider integrated whole of government approach. Um, can it have that, that type of uh, impact? So we'll, we have to look at uh, the timelines. We have to look at the type of effect that we, uh, we can have. Um, and we'll, but we'll work with the UN. But I can't give you a timeline exactly when it's needed. Because a smart pledge is not about getting in as quickly as possible. It's about filling the capability gaps so that a, a current peacekeeping missions themselves can have, have a consistent amount of resources moving forward. So even when you make those decisions, it's about coming in at the right time. And that's what... Uh, um, in Iraq, what we did as a responsible coalition partner, and we're going to do the same thing now of kind of modernizing the way peacekeeping operations are supported. So you're internally not even working within a specific timeline? No, we don't have any exact timeline to say we must get this done because that but would be But then could, it, could it first be, I mean, it's been over a year since you made the initial announcement. Could it be another year before we know where anyone's going? No, I think what you'll see is from the smart pledging side of things, we're going to be looking at where those gaps are because the missions themselves have uh, the res uh, certain resources. We need to assess what, what are those type of gaps. Do our capabilities that, we are, that we're offering up, can they fill those gaps? Um, so those are the type of things. We can't give you an ex exact time frame. We could have, um, um, we can go through a lot of hypothetical uh, situations, but ultimately it's getting into the discussions with the UN, looking at also the, our wider initiatives of how the impact they can have, getting more women involved in peacekeeping, because that onto its own can have a tremendous impact down the road. When you have greater number of women impacting a larger portion of the population, that's also going to start reducing conflict as well. But reducing will the number be... of child soldiers is going to have a, an impact, and that's why the Vancouver principles are so important to us. I understand. Will have an impact, though. It's in the future, right? So I think, you know, will there be people deployed, men and women from Canada, before the end of your mandate? I can't. Oh, we will have people. I can't uh, give you the exact time frame. We will have people deployed. Um, Canadians uh, expect us to make sure that we get involved uh, properly with the peace support operations, but they want to make sure that we uh, get get this right. Uh, now, we, with our smart pledging, our new approach that uh, uh, we have put forward, more importantly, this approach is exactly what the United Nations um, is looking for. Nations to come and offer up smart pledges, and smart pledges about key capabilities that are desperately needed in certain missions, but more importantly, getting into a rotational basis. It's one thing to provide support and then have nations pull it out. If you, smart pledging is about getting into a proper rotation, then that's the planning that our military planners will start doing, and we'll make a decision on that. Okay, thanks for your time, Minister. Great, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Enjoy the conference. Thanks. I'm Vashi Capellos. Thank you for listening to the West Block Podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and tune in again next week for another West Block Podcast.